Welcome to Listen to the Signal, science fiction short stories in audio, written and narrated by Rob Dirks. Hey, Rob here. I actually wrote and recorded this story back in March of 2020, right when COVID was locking everything down. The idea of a plague story wouldn't get out of my head. It's a common theme in sci-fi, the plague that wipes out humanity, and it was on all of our minds. But I wound up shelving it, thinking maybe that nerve was a little too raw. It just wasn't the right time. And I don't know if it's the right time now, but it's been a year and a half, and this story keeps reminding me it's out there. The strange tale of a regular guy at the end of it all, trying to make sense and maybe make a difference. I actually like it a lot, and I hope you do too. Father Tim Chopsticks. Yep, sounds stupid, right? But it was the chopsticks that did it. It happened so fast the news never really put all the pieces of the puzzle together before it was too late. Not that it would have changed anything if they finished the puzzle. It would have just been a nice, complete puzzle with no one left to look at it. The last I heard was something about cross-contamination between the Chinese factory making dried bat miracle powders. We laughed here in the West about that, but apparently they take that shit very seriously in the East. And the neighboring factory churning out billions of chopsticks for use around the world. Somehow the Chaijing bat virus, hiding, biding its time, was dried along with its host and atomized, and over months and months enough molecules of it impregnated and corrupted the neighboring woodstocks of Zhango manufacturing. Stamped into chopsticks, now containing the dormant virus, the chopsticks were shipped to over a hundred countries, including the United States. From there, all it took to reactivate the Chaijing by the way, Chaijing is Chinese for surprise. All it took was a drop or two of human saliva, which, of course, is exactly what you get when you shove a chunk of General So's chicken into your mouth, held aloft by a pair of imported Shango manufacturing chopsticks. Now, that whole story could have been conjectured. The news people were dropping like flies, like everyone else, and sources of information were getting spotty even then, only two weeks after the first cases were reported. But they seemed certain it started with the Chaijing and the chopsticks. And like I said, it doesn't really matter at this point. Once people started getting sick, it didn't make a difference if you never touched the chopstick in your life. All it took was a cough or a sneeze or the touch of a subway turnstile. Or just being in the same room as one of the infected. And God forbid you stepped into a hospital for help. Then you were basically asking for it. In fact, the hospitals were the first to shut down. They could do nothing to stop the Chaijing. It had happened too fast. All the medicine and technology in the world could do nothing. Nothing. It would have been funny if it weren't so fucking bizarre and soul-crushing to see how fast people turned their faith then from science back to God. Within another week, the churches here in Manhattan were filled with the faithful, all the poor souls who knew the end was coming and had nowhere else to go for a miracle. And that's where I am right now, tending to the infected. Well, calling it tending is a stretch. There's nothing I can do, of course. But I hold their hands and pray with them. And in two and a half weeks when they pass, I help place them into body bags and move them into Fifth Avenue, where the dozers are still at work, collecting the bodies and pushing them onto barges in the East River to be sent out to sea. Another of those last futile attempts to keep this thing under control. Keep the streets open. Keep the stench of death from becoming overwhelming. Father Tim? 
It's an old man, feverish. He's in the second week, so he's starting to hallucinate. He calls me Father Tim. They all do now, but the truth is I'm just some guy living in an apartment a couple of blocks down from St. Patrick's, and I'm not a father or a priest or whatever they think I am. I just happened to be passing the massive front doors last week, and a woman fell on her way in, so I helped her get to her feet. She looked up at me, searching. I was wearing my black pants and black shirt, coming off my last ever shift at Delmonico's. Thank you, Father. Uh, no, I'm a waiter. She shook her head and kissed me on the hand and chuckled. And thank you for making an old woman laugh, Father. No, I'm a waiter, really. Well, I'm a playwright, or an aspiring one, as all waiters aspire to something, I guess, but... And then she was gone, into the throngs crowding the pews, to rest and to hope, or to at least make peace at the end. And then two young men, teenagers, approached me as they'd led who must have been their mother through the doors. Excuse me, Father, is, is there a process to this? I looked around. It was chaos. Who would have expected it to be anything else? And several other faces looked to mine. Listen, people, I'm not who you think. But it had just happened. I was no longer a waiter or an aspiring playwright. I would never be any of those things again. Now I'm father. Okay, listen, in and to the left. There's more room on the left. After three days, there did seem to be order germinating from the chaos. We would bring the first week infected to the front, closer to the podium, better to listen to the actual legitimate priests offering comfort, as it was all they could offer, and the aid workers who weren't yet sick prepared food for them to the right of the altar. The second week infected were moved to the back as they could no longer eat and barely make sense of their surroundings. This also brought them closer to the main doors, where it would be easier and more discreet to move them into the side street and the bulldozers when their time came. The streets were still clear through to my apartment building, and I did manage to get home a couple of times a day and take care of things there. Father Tim? It's the old man again, almost pleading. Yes, Arnold? You are real, yes? I I'm, I'm not imagining you? Yes, I'm real, Arnold. I take his hand so he can feel the realness, the pressure of my touch. Then why aren't you getting sick? He wasn't the first one to ask me this. As the infecteds came and went by the thousands, there were a few of us, myself and maybe five of the aid workers, who just didn't succumb to the Chai Jing. No fever, no sweats, no nausea, nothing. I actually felt better than ever. I'm not special, Arnold. It's something random. I don't know why I'm not sick. Ah, but I do know why. I open my mouth to protest, but he starts babbling. Semi-words, mumbles. He's getting closer to the end. There's no point in arguing. But then the clarity moment. I know why you've been spared, Father Tim. Because you are the second coming. I recoil and rise, practically tearing my hand loose from Arnold's and rush to the exit. No! I run the two blocks home, my mind racing with Arnold's words. Who is he to say something like that? Jesus Christ, no offense, but I don't even know if I believe in any of that. And I definitely don't believe in some judgment at the end. And really, if there even were one, I definitely wouldn't be a central figure. I'd be the guy bussing the dishes in the upper room after the Last Supper clearing the table and getting it ready for the next party of twelve. 
I wouldn't even make it into Da Vinci's painting as an extra. Second coming. Arnold, do you have any idea how much you just freaked me out? I leap up the stairs to my place, two at a time, to the fourth floor. Open the door to 4B, quietly, breathing heavy, tiptoeing to the kitchen. I open a can of chicken noodle soup, pouring just the broth into a bowl, and microwave it for a minute. Then I make my way, silent as possible, to the second bedroom. I lean into the door, and it creaks, and the first thing I see are two bowls of broth, untouched. And there, in the bed, eyes closed, smiling at God knows what, she lay. I whisper, Mom? She opens her eyes, looking a bit unsure if I'm there or something that she's imagining. Timmy, are you really there? Yes, Mom. I approach and set down the third bowl, knowing now that food will never pass her lips again. Mom, you're not hungry? Oh, I just ate. You feed me too much. Look how fat I'm getting. She smiles and pushes out her belly beneath the blankets, using her arms to amplify the effect. I laugh. Man, we're going to have to put you on a diet. And I move to take the bowls away. No, Timmy, don't leave. It's getting late, love. Oh, no. The last phase. Beyond the hallucinations. In the final few hours, infecteds gain a blazing clarity, an understanding, almost premonition. She knows it's coming for her. And I know. But somehow I'm still not ready. Can you ever be ready? Um, okay. So I sit there like a little kid with no answers, waiting for her to give me one. She always had the answers. Do you remember when you were small, Timmy? Yeah, of course. Well, some stuff. Do you remember the finger dances? I smile and take her hand from beneath the blankets and prop my index and middle finger up on her belly like legs, and I lean them forward in a bow. She mirrors my movements with a finger lady of her own, but adds a little curtsy at the end. May I have this dance, young lady? You certainly may, young man. Play after you've gone. And my little finger man approaches her little finger lady, and as I sing, the two figures waltz around on the blanket on her belly. After you've gone and left me crying, after you've gone, there's no denying You'll feel blue, you'll feel sad, you'll miss the dearest pal that you've ever had, and there'll come a time, now don't forget it. And slowly, as she smiles and moves in time with my finger man, she closes her eyes and hums along, and then her hand rests back down to her heart and her humming stops. And she exhales and whispers, Love you. And that is all. I don't cry. God, I don't think I have any tears left after these past two weeks. No, I just kiss her on the forehead and smooth her hair a little and tuck her in and take the bowls to the kitchen. It's time to leave New York. Five days later, I still haven't left, but I haven't been back to the apartment either. I've been saying goodbye here and there at the cathedral to more people than I thought could fit into the entire city of Manhattan, never mind St. Patrick's. I have known more people in the past month than I knew in my entire previous life, and I've now said goodbye to each and every one. The priests are gone now. They've whispered their own last rites. The aid workers are gone. 
Even the one or two that, like me, somehow escaped the Chai Jing have fled. I'm assuming to some place without so much death. After the final infected has exhaled his last, I am alone here now. Alone with death. Death. I went from never seeing a single person die in my entire life to seeing thousands, maybe tens of thousands, die right in front of me, all within four weeks. I know I'm still in some form of shock, trying to absorb the incomprehensible, like the prisoners at Auschwitz must have felt after their first month, redefining what death meant, what the scale of death could look like when taken to the ultimate extreme. I don't know what it's doing to my sanity. At any moment, it all threatens to unravel, any last thread I'm miraculously holding on to. I could easily just stop and sit here, in the stench, and put my head down and babble like one of the infected, and wait for the grim reaper to call my name. I don't think anyone would blame me. But somehow, somehow, I still hold on to my can opener, wander the supermarket, and force food into my belly, and live within the gossamer-thin guardrails of life, not veering off the cliff into blackness. The slightest touch in those guardrails would disintegrate like a soap bubble. But no, it's not my time. No. Something compels me to keep my eyes open, look around, assess the situation, think about the future, to plan. Isn't that crazy? To plan? Plan what? Well, regardless of plan or no plan, I find myself walking absently toward the Lincoln Tunnel, away from the awful smell, toward New Jersey, with a shopping cart full of cans and bottles and three cases of water. I could theoretically drive, I guess. I've got my choice of cars or even military vehicles, but the streets are parking lots now. Even a bulldozer wouldn't get me through one of the tunnels or bridges. I turn off 31st Street, fairly sure it's the entrance to the tunnel, and hear clanking. Probably dogs, scrounging, or rats, the new dominant species of New York City, I've decided. I didn't bring a gun along, though I could have. I could look like Rambo if I wanted, with grenade launchers strapped across each shoulder. But I always remember what Mom said. You carry a weapon, Timmy, and nine times out of ten you're the one it gets used on. I have no idea how she arrived at this figure, whether it was even true at all, but she had drilled it into the primitive muscle part of my brain, and the belief had gotten me this far, so I didn't see any reason to abandon it now. I have allowed myself a knife, but a fourth grader with some skills could easily disarm me. I don't know what comes over me, just some leftover curiosity from old Tim, and I shout, hey, just to scatter the rats or whatever they are. But it's not a they. A hooded figure rises from a crouch and turns to face me. Hey, yourself! I am paralyzed with fear as the figure removes its hood and takes a step toward me. It's a woman, 60 maybe, which momentarily eases my paralysis, though I don't know why because plenty of 60-year-old women could kick my ass or worse. I stammer, you can take all my stuff, I'm not armed. The woman looks up and around, pointing at all the skyscrapers. All your stuff, my love? There's more stuff in this godforsaken city than anyone left on earth could use up. No, you can keep your stuff, Father Tim. Wait, Father? You Father Tim, right? I'm a waiter. She laughs. They told me you might say that. They? Listen, my love. 
I don't know if this is your lucky day or just another worst day of your life, but there's a group of us Nevisicks headed out a couple of weeks ago, made it to a farm in Waldwick. No stench, plenty of resources, close enough to this hellhole in case we need gas, cars, what have you. Anyways, a bunch of them kept talking about some Father Tim. He'd probably be the last one out of hell. Compassionate, sucker. And he's worth going back for. She looked down and kicked a rat that was sniffing around her backpack. Looked back up, impatient. So just answer me two questions and I'll be on my way. Are you Father Tim? And are you worth coming back for? Uh, I don't know if I'm worth coming back for, but yes, I'm Tim. I take a step forward and offer my hand. Um, how'd you know I'd be taking the Lincoln Tunnel? Oh shit, thanks for reminding me. She digs the military walkie-talkie out of her pack and yells into it. Got him, y'all. You can converge here on me, Lizzie, here at the 31st entrance to the Lincoln Tunnel. Then she puts down the radio and takes my offered hand. We didn't know. They had a station one at each exit. Lincoln, Holland, Brooklyn Bridge, Williamsburg, 59th Street, etc. Been sitting here on our asses for three days almost. Needless to say, tomorrow we were going to call it off. So again, lucky day or just another worst day for you, my love. Well, I'll call it lucky. Hey, do you call everyone my love or just me? She laughs at this, a real cackle, like a witch. Oh, that's rich. Yeah, it's just you, Father Tim. Love at first sight. Can't keep my eyes off you. I just stand there, I guess, looking emotionless. I mean, I haven't had a conversation in a week. And I can't remember the last time someone joked with me. Lizzie seems to notice this, and her look softens. You've been through a lot. We all have. More than a lot. The most. The worst damn thing the big man could have come up with. Maybe even worse than the flood. But you've done good, Father Tim, from what I heard anyway. She puts her arm around my shoulder. It'll be good to have you around. That's my prediction. I don't have any skills. It's not what I heard. And it don't matter anyway. We're all going to learn. Going to start over. This ain't the end, my love. It's the beginning. She sits down to wait for the others and pats the sidewalk for me to join her. I'm struck suddenly with how much Lizzie reminds me of my mom. She doesn't look like her, and she certainly doesn't talk like her. But there is something about her, about how life bubbles up inside her and can't keep itself from coming out, about how love seems to be her favorite word, like mom. Excuse me, Lizzie, right? While we wait, can I ask you a favor? Sure. And so I tell her about my mom and the finger dances, of all things. And for a moment, Lizzie looks at me like maybe they shouldn't have come back for me at all. But then she relents and props her two fingers on the pavement. You'll have to lead. I've never done this before. As I walk my little finger man over to her as I ask, Lady's Choice on the song. Without hesitation, a grin widening her face, she says, You know, the Louis Armstrong one. Hmm. I only know one verse. It's okay. So I sing and our hands dance awkwardly. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright blessed day and the dark sacred night. And together we sing the last words, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Lizzie lifts her fingers and cups my face in her hands and kisses me hard on the cheek and whispers in my ear, 
And maybe someday it'll be wonderful again, my love. <laughs>